The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very warm welcome everybody. This is Box. The headlines this hour. Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez's Socialist Party wins Spain's third election in four years but falls short of a majority as the far-right Vox Party makes historic gains. Russia's central bank governor tells CNBC exclusively she's worried about a global slowdown but doesn't see a recession next year. We don't see any recession in global markets. Some slowdown can happen, but we don't see a global recession. A mixed start to the week in Asia as investors digest stronger than expected U.S. first quarter GDP and look ahead to the Fed meeting for further clues on its policy path. Plus, President Trump's call for OPEC to raise output continues to weigh on oil prices. We knew it was coming, didn't we? Uh, which fall for a second consecutive session. At this hour, we speak first on to the Philips CEO as the Dutch tech firm reports first quarter earnings. Uber hits the road for this year's biggest IPO after pricing shares of $44 to $50 each. And Avengers Endgame smashes box office records, taking in $1.2 billion in its opening weekend. It's okay. I'm not crying. It's just something in my eye. Endgame. Oh, my God. Did you see it? Oh, no spoilers here. Just saying. See it quickly. I'm not sure how long I can contain myself. What an amazing, amazing movie. Okay, look, here we are. Amazing, amazing times on the markets as well. We saw record levels on the NASDAQ 100, on the NASDAQ Composite, and on the S&P at the tail end of last week. But were they propelled higher by fantastic US corporate numbers? And my goodness me, we know some companies were really doing incredibly well. I thought the numbers out from the likes of Microsoft and Amazon as well, obviously propelling the markets higher, consumer discretionary, Another subsector at a record high on Friday. We saw nine out of 11 sectors higher. But is it the data from the companies or indeed the likes of the GDP number, which look at this figure. What did we get on an annualized figure? 3.2%. I know we're going to talk about this in some big detail with Jeff and Karen in a few moments time. But tell me, tell me you geniuses out there, how do you cut rates when you've got an annual growth rate on GDP of 3.2%? You don't know, do you? And that's because you can't cut rates when you've got an annual growth of 3.2%. But that's what some of you have been pricing in because you've gone a little bit gung-ho on the amount of extra money you're going to get from the central bank drinking game uh, because you need that extra bit of Kool-Aid at the end of the party, don't you? And I have to say, potentially, the data could scupper you. Yes, we saw weak PCE numbers at the tail end of last week, so the inflationary impetus for hikes isn't there. But is the impetus on the down side there as well to get your cuts. I don't know, but I know we've got FOMC this week and I know we've got payroll later on in the week as well. Maybe we'll get yet more clues. Let's have a look at the US yields and see where they're trading on the bond market. Well, the 10-year trading, uh, well, that's not the yield anyway, but it's the 10-year trading at 101.08 as well. And there's the five-year note and the 10-year trading at 101. You don't get a lot of information from this. Maybe we'll get the yields a little bit later on as well. Uh, let's have a look at the WTI and Brent. Uh, w- uh, the headline I read, Trump, 
uh, tweeting, apparently telling OPEC uh, to raise production. Well, with all due respect, sir, you're the one who's taking production off the table by put, taking away those waivers on Iran. So they're just dancing to your merry tune. So that's a very complicated situation uh, for the likes of Khalid al-Fali uh, and indeed his non-OPEC allies in the likes of, of Russia, Mr. Novak there as well. Talking to Russia, and a man who's just come back from Russia with a fantastic interview. I'll tell you about that in a moment. Uh, let's have a look at the Asian markets. Uh, Japan is closed, hence I haven't got it on here for you. You've got the Hang Seng up seven tenths of 1%. The Kospi down in South Korea, 1.1% higher. And the opening calls for European markets look like this. Uh, slightly higher on the FTSE MIB over in Italy. Uh, FTSE seen slightly higher as well. The Zetradax unchanged. I can tell you what happened on the European markets last week. The FTSE was down 0.4 of 1%. The DAX was up 0.3 of 1%. And the CAC was down by 0.2 of 1%. So much to discuss. We can talk about Tony Stark. We can talk about the Hulk. We can talk... Oh, no, we can't talk about that because people still haven't seen the movie. Come on, get on with it. See the movie so we can talk about it. So is there a... Uh, a very good morning, actually. Oh, nice way, nice to be back with you. I haven't seen you for a month. <laughs> it's been a while. Have you missed me? It's been a while. Welcome back. Morning, Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I mean, is there a uh, a read across from Endgame here when we apply it to the view that was prevalent in markets before we saw this uptick in improved data from China and the United States? The market view was that we're going to have a horrible earnings season, that there are reasons to start peeling away, that you don't want to be holding equity long into a slowing second quarter growth story, and actually you want to step out of the way because this juggernaut of slowing growth and potential recession in the second half or early part of next year was going to steamroller you. And now end game for that view, it appears to have been parked. Yeah, just just one word from me before Karen comes in with something far more eloquent. One, is it about the buybacks still? Two, is it about the Kool-Aid from the central banks? Or is it markets rally on better data because things are going better? I don't know anymore. I thought I did once upon a time. I just want to come back to the data. I mean, how strong is that when you had the market expecting a 2% number? We were, we were talking on Friday about one of the market watchers who'd guided up from uh, uh, one handle to about 2.8% coming up to the numbers. And what did we have? A number that exceeded three. So even though that looked like a ridiculous change to expectations, uh, to get a number well and truly past uh, what the market had expected, what do you do with some of these trades? Well, the US dollar, we've all been waiting for it to track sideways or start to, to sort of come off one of those highs. It's not going to at this point, is it? If you've got a US economy that's growing that much faster, but there's still concerns elsewhere, does the US dollar continue to grind higher from here? And that is a game changer, maybe for some of those US corporates as well. And that's uh, the challenge with this, isn't it? When you're, when you're looking about your time frame for investing at this stage, there's enough in the information we've received here for both the bulls but also the bears that have been forced into hibernation because as they look at that GDP data they can say okay the headline was great but was this a bit of a magic trick when you looked at the decline in the 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 consumer and business spending element and the fact that a lot of the growth was around inventory that still sat on the shelves and back to your point about the dollar a terrific point to make at this stage because everybody was getting nervous about tightening liquidity in markets last year and whether there would be enough easy money dollars around to satisfy trade and the needs of emerging markets. Well, if that tightening is happening as a result of stronger dollar, that may have consequences down the road. Balance sheets. 
Balance sheets, balance sheets, balance sheets. Look at them. Look at the stresses in them. Because one thing that's been very clear is that <clears throat> whether it's a higher oil price, which is a cost, whether it's a higher other input costs that come from that higher energy price, or whether it's tightening financial conditions as well on the rollover of this vast amount of corporate debt, <clears throat> debt there will be enormous strains on some balance sheets. Not all. There are some companies out there that are fr- throwing off free cash flow that can really handle this as well. But there's a vast number, more non-financial US corporate companies than ever before have a greater debt to net income, a debt to revenue than they've ever had before as well. So take a look at those companies because they will be the ones if we get a higher oil price and we get tighter financial conditions because the economy is continuing to improve, they will be the ones under pressure. So I'm afraid to say it's the old adage, it's a market of stocks. So if we can just question a couple more market trends. I mean, one of the big trends this year has been the emerging market, um, you know, bounce back, the sort of wading back into these stocks that were unloved because what do we have? Well, we've got a Fed that's not tightening supposedly, a Fed that's going to be very patient on the sidelines. If we start to question that narrative from this week with another Fed meeting because we've got much stronger data to work with, where does that EM trade go? Is it limited? Do we have a time frame now to capture some more of those gains? Or have you got to start selling out, taking well, stock if the Fed's moving off previous the sidelines? Answer. Uh, in my notes, dollar index back to its highest level it's seen in two years, May 2017 as well. We all know the roll up, the, the point I just made about balance sheets as well. We all know the rollover on emerging market debt in dollar denominators as well. That could be incredibly painful if the dollar continues to rally. What was it, the worst week since October for Chinese stocks last week, I think? Uh, and you've already banked your 20% gain if you were smart. Very interesting whether you're willing to sit in there and ride it out for the second quarter. Um, Let's move on. Your thoughts always welcome. Get in touch over Twitter or via uh, the usual channels on email. Uh, Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez looks set to retain power after his Socialist Party notched up a 50% gain in seats in the country's general election. But with almost all of the votes counted, the Socialists are not close to an absolute majority in Spain's 350-seat parliament. Sunday's poll also saw the far-right party Vox win national seats for the first time. Let's get out to Willem, who joins us uh, with more from Madrid. So what does this mean about forming a government, Willem? Well, it means there's not a huge amount of certainty, Jeff, essentially. It could be days, weeks or months. When I put that to a minister last night, in terms of the timeline, there was no clear response. What Pedro Sanchez is likely to do is essentially rework the configuration we saw until a couple of months ago when he called the snap election, which is to work with an anti-austerity left-wing party known as Podemos, and then some of the smaller regional parties that would get him over that magic number 176, which is the absolute majority, to get a working government in the Congreso de Deputados behind me. In terms of the alternatives to that, he could also try and work with Ciudadanos, the Citizens Party. The challenge for that, though, is going to be that the leader of that party, Albert Rivera, has been incredibly critical of Mr. Sanchez during the selection campaign, specifically as it pertains to his actions with Catalonia. He's been accused by Mr. Rivera of treason, essentially, for meeting with Catalan separatists, for engaging in dialogue, and indeed for working with them inside the Congreso up until that snap election. It was their loss of support, you may remember, that caused him to have to call this election because he couldn't get his budget through. Mr. Sanchez last night said that he was willing to work with anyone, though. The only condition we are going to put is respecting the Constitution and promoting social justice towards coexistence and political transparency. 
So what does this mean for investors? What does this mean for business? Well, there's not a lot of clarity just yet. It could be many weeks until the European parliamentary elections at the end of May. And then even into June, someone told us last night from inside the Socialist Party before we see a new government. I had a chance to speak last night with the Trade Minister Reyes Maroto, someone we spoke to at the beginning of this electoral campaign, and I asked her whether there was any more certainty at this stage. Here's her answer. Without a doubt, what investors need is stability and a stable government that offers them security. With the results that we've achieved of the 123 seats in Congress, we are able to offer some stability. We can't keep going back to the polls every two years. This also impacts our political and economic credibility in doing so. As I mentioned, this is a breath of fresh air that we are able to offer economic policies where no one is left behind, but also of course generating investment opportunities, which as the Minister responsible for Trade and Tourism, I have been working on. We will need time to analyse the results and work out what the best government will be for this country. I think we definitely have capacity, with the 123 seats, to bring the best efforts needed. Hopefully this will be done in a short space of time, as Spain does need stability, and the sooner we have a government formed, the better it will be for Spain, and the sooner we can keep moving forward with the policies we have started working on over the last 10 months. These policies needed time to come into effect, and now we have time. We have four years to prove that the Socialist Party has a project working towards the future, and I believe that the formation of the government shouldn't be delayed too long. So it remains to be seen whether that is an optimistic prediction that the socialists will have four years. But some of the challenges ahead of them include the continued and chronic unemployment in many regions of Spain. We're seeing a slightly stalling economy. And although the socialists have taken social justice measures, something they've really focused on when they were in power, including a higher minimum wage, they're also planning much more high taxes on top earners here in Spain, as well as certain sectors, including, guys, the banks. Willem, do you want to talk about the right? Because we saw a splintering as Vox, the far-right party, came into the mix at the first time we saw the far-right uh, take a seat in Parliament since the country's return to democracy. It was at one, one in ten votes that Vox managed to secure. What type of force do you think they will be in Parliament? Well, what they've done over the last couple of months, Karen, essentially on the national stage, is they've forced the two other parties to the right of centre, even further to the right. They've had incredibly conservative views on some social issues, including women's reproductive rights, and they've forced some of the other party members, leaders, high-profile figures, to take slightly more hard-line approaches to some of those issues. But it's been Catalonia that's really seen them grow so significantly from zero to around 10% of the vote, as you mentioned there. It's because they've taken the most tough stance when it comes to the idea of allowing any autonomy, essentially, in the Catalan region, something that Pedro Sanchez has said he's completely open to so long as they stay inside the Spanish constitution when it comes to their dialogue with the Madrid centre. Vox really saying they would like to suspend that kind of autonomy and crush, essentially, any of these rebels, as they call them, inside uh, Barcelona and some of the other cities in Catalonia. We've seen some of those high-profile leaders, you remember from that October 2017 period when they held that referendum that the Constitutional Court deemed illegal. We've seen some of them facing prosecution for things like sedition over the last few months. That's been a very polarizing issue here. And yet, some of those high-profile Catalan politicians, they actually won seats last night from their jail cells. Just to give you a sense of how strong the support is amongst many Catalans for the, some of those pro-separatist movements. 
Willem, thanks so much for that. We'll catch up with you a little bit later on. Uh, still to come on the programme, we're going to speak with the CEO of Philips, Franz van Houten. That's a first on CNBC interview as the Dutch company posts a 2% rise in first quarter sales. Okay, um, I need someone to give me clarity on the Philips numbers, and that person will be waiting in the wings in a couple of seconds' time. Look, they've got this target, and the target is growth. Uh, they had 5% sales growth last time round as well. They've got a target of growth, um, which is a 4 to 6% level of sales and comparable growth. But this time round, uh, the first quarter, only 2% as well. So with that, I'm going to go straight to Franz van Houten, who's the CEO of Philips. Because, Franz, good morning to you, by the way. Lovely to see you, as ever. Um, you've good got morning. a problem. And it's, I don't know whether it's the diagnosis and treatment arm with the 2% sales growth or perhaps more so the connected care business where you look like you've got some problems. You finally got the business you want, but they're not delivering in the first quarter. Why, sir? Well, I don't have a problem. Let me just explain uh, what the, the first quarter is about. So I call it a reasonable quarter. First of all, I'm quite happy that personal health uh, has uh, come back to 5% growth in the quarter driven by our Sonicare power toothbrush. Uh, if you recall, personal health was actually weaker last year, so there we saw uh, a surge. Uh, in the other businesses, we are sitting on a tremendous order book. Last year, in 2018, the company recorded double-digit order growth through the year. So uh, with confidence, I can say, you know, through, uh, in 2019, we will see starting with the second quarter and certainly in the second half, a much stronger uh, revenue uh, development. Uh, and I say that because of that order book. So um, it is a reasonable start. And uh, yes, 2% is not within the bandwidth of my goal, but through the year, we will get into that bandwidth. In connected care, um, Franz, you have a mid-single digit decline in monitoring and analytics as well. That looks the worst of the bunch. Do you need some real action at that division? Uh, I agree that it looks like that, but this is exactly where we had, you know, strong double-digit order growth in the fourth quarter of the year. Um, and it takes several months to turn these orders into revenue. Um, I travel a lot. I speak with hospital systems. They are all very keen on connected care. This is the area where we apply health informatics and artificial intelligence to optimize care pathways, to enable hospitals to do telehealth. It's an area where we invest significantly. Um, it's a new area, so growth comes with uh, starts and bounds, and uh, it's a little bit uneven, uh, but I'm very confident that this business uh, is the future of healthcare, where sensor technology and so on, cloud technology will enable new relationships between doctors and patients. So I'm enthusiastic about it. And we should not read too much into this, uh, uh, the way uh, Connected Care started the year. Well, Franz, perhaps you can guide us then around what you're expecting for the operating cash flow, because these numbers in the first quarter are well done on last year. You had about 92 million euros same time a year ago, now 14 million. So what are your expectations for the rest of the year if there's more heavy lifting coming? Yeah, we, uh, we expect to have a cash flow of at least a billion in the year. And we are always um, back-end loaded with regards to cash. That has to do with the revenue recognition in especially healthcare. 
Um, we spoke just now about converting orders into revenue, uh, which means that there's quite some work in progress going on, which uh, can be found back in the inventory line as we recognize that into revenue in Q2, Q3, and customers will pay us, then you will see this very big cash flow as we every year have uh, in the second half year. Um, Franz, how do you excite the shareholders then at this point? Because I think, um, you know, judging by the, the, the questions and answers we've had so far, it's sort of as steady as she goes, uh, the good work's being done. But clearly in the share price, there isn't any evidence that the long side are excited about owning your stock. Well, um, I hear quite differently. Uh, both the CFO and I are regularly on the road and we speak with shareholders. They actually believe that Philips uh, is uh, undervalued versus medtech stocks. Um, we explain how our business is built up and that there is always a lumpiness to these larger projects. Uh, but the strategy is spot on. We get great feedback from customers with a double digit order growth in 2018. Um, hey, nobody can complain. Uh, and even uh, looking at emerging markets uh, this year, uh, we again started the year with double digit order growth. So uh, the story is very strong. Uh, that is what I will be telling shareholders as we are on the road. And I have absolutely no concern that uh, this is well understandable. The um, latest GDP number out of uh, the United States uh, looked very exciting at a headline level, but one of the underlying issues appears to be inventory build-up, and this is uh, obviously a, an area where um, it could be challenging for the second half of the year. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about the macro as you see it and how you think that might help you out or otherwise through the rest of the year, Franz. I think when we look at uh, the macroeconomic environment, we would say it's it's a slightly softer economy than last year. Also in the United States, by the way, where I see hospitals being a little bit hesitant uh, in, uh, as they start the year. Um, Europe, uh, I think we all know, um, there's a lot of uncertainty there. Uh, that explains also more a, a flat, flattish outlook. I remain very confident about emerging markets and especially China, where Philips has been able to record strong double-digit order growth. Um, populations around the world need healthcare, right? And whether the economy goes a little bit up or a little bit down, that doesn't change. And I would say Philips now is much more resilient um, to be insulated from economic upturns and downturns because we are now a healthcare company. I want to get into uh, acquisitions then, uh, Franz, because if you look at the reshaping the portfolio, the, the shedding of lighting and, and television and the reshaping towards a personal health connected care and uh, diagnosis and treatment, what comes next? Do you see any acquisitions down the track or is it going to be about collaborations given the existing portfolio you have? It has been a very exciting portfolio transformation. And uh, we are well positioned now along, along what we call the, the care continuum uh, with strong beachheads in precision diagnosis, uh, minimally invasive kydotherapy, connected care and home care. Uh, there are always bold on acquisitions to be done. And we have done several last year. Uh, in fact, already in the first quarter, uh, we uh, acquired um, 
the health informatics from CareStream that is boosting our precision diagnosis business. Um, Philips remains mostly an organic growth story um, and through our own R&D uh, we boost growth. Um, but it is exciting to uh, pick up uh, occasionally bolt-on acquisitions to, to augment and, uh, the, the portfolio in adjacencies. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.